0: Carlson, Carlson, Carlson. Hoi, here comes Carlson. Carlson, Carlson, Carlsson. Ingen faktiskt ingen annan carlson, bra som me. Carlson, Carlson, Carlson scores. Carlson, Carlson, Thank you, everybody, for tuning in to another Summer Series episode of the Keeping Carlson Fantasy Hockey Podcast, the best fantasy hockey podcast in the world, hosted by two guys' who own Eric Carlson in their keeper pools. I'm your host, Elon Dubrovsky, and as always, with me, Brian Com.
1: Hello, Elon. Hello, everybody. It's great to be here, as always.
0: Man, Brian, you had two weeks to come up with something. That's the best you got? That's all right. We've got a lot of content, so let's just move forward. Very excited about this week's episode. Lots to talk about in terms of just stuff going on in the playoffs, some interesting coaching signings, then we have some content in terms of we want to talk about some players who surprised us this year by doing so well, and we want to know if they'll be able to do it again next year. We'll get into all of that first. Let's mention that we are presented by DabberHockey.com, the best fantasy hockey website out there. They're still going strong, even in the NHL playoffs. They're giving us daily ramblings, impacts of things happening both in the playoffs and outside of the playoffs. Like there's an article about Bruce Boudreaux hired by Minnesota and what they think that's going to do for the Minnesota Wild and fantasy-wise, which players are going to benefit, maybe which ones will be hurt. Always interesting stuff over on DabberHockey.com.
1: Yes, and within the last like 20 minutes, Guy Boucher was hired by the Ottawa Senators and he is currently the front page picture on DabberHockey.com. They move quickly over there.
0: Yeah, good job, Dauber, and Brian, you are up in arms about all of this coaching news. I've seen you on the Facebook group and on Twitter, just, you seem to be pretty upset about what's been going on. I guess you're not happy that the Sens didn't get Bruce Baudreau, and now you're also unhappy about this signing. What are your thoughts, just generally, obviously it's not really a fantasy question, but about the coaching signings overall, I'm sure everyone wants to hear your take.
1: Honestly, my take isn't so much about what exactly has transpired, it's how it has transpired with Boudreaux obviously going to command the salary and term that essentially one of the best head coaches in the NHL should command, and the Sens going all along saying, you know, we're willing to commit, but, you know, how great can a coach really be? So sort of talking out of both sides of their mouth, saying we're going to get the best guy available, but we also don't believe so much in the power of a head coach that we need to make a significant financial or term commitment to him. And then they lose out on Boudreaux. He came to Ottawa. Many accounts suggested that Ottawa was his choice, was where he wanted to go. Whatever happened in the meeting with Ottawa happened. It was very long. There was optimism. There were articles already being written in the newspaper about if Bruce Boudreaux was the coach in Ottawa. And then he gets hired by the Wild, which is okay. Sometimes it doesn't work out. We don't know why. We can only assume that it was because of a team's internal cap perhaps, that they wouldn't be able to pay Boudreaux what he wanted without shipping out some players to do it because of how cash-strapped they are. But then today, when they hire Guy Boucher, which is a really exciting thing in my mind, I thought it was a great second choice. Except the Sens spun it as though it was their top choice all along, which is bizarre because they already offered Bruce Boudreau a contract to coach with them that he turned down and he went to Minnesota instead. So again, it's not so much what happened. You know, you can't always have the guy you want. I get it. I don't know why it wasn't a fit for Boudreaux and the Sens. I'll even give them the benefit of the doubt there. But then to hire A different guy the day after the guy that you publicly offered a contract to signed with another team and call that guy your top choice is just dishonest. And I feel insulted by it as a Sens fan.
0: Oh, man. You are mad, Brian. I don't know why I find it entertaining (laughs) that you're so mad about this, but...
1: I'm mad because it should be good news. It should be good news. I should be really happy about this, except I feel like my intelligence was insulted with the press release that came out and all of this other stuff. Like, just say, look, we hired Guy Boucher. We think he's going to do a really good job. You all should be very happy about it. And personally, I am, because I thought Bob Hartley was going to be the guy. And the fact that Randy Carlyle even had... His hat in the race was just abominable. But I think if I went on any further, I'd probably just be repeating my points too often. I am happy about this. I'm just not happy about the way I'm being treated.
0: All right. All right. Well, I am kind of curious, though, about the main point here, trying to bring this back into fantasy. Like, does the coach... I'm gonna get a lot of hate mail for this maybe does the coach matter that much like I'm reading this article on Dauber Hockey about the Boudreaux signing in Minnesota and the author Ian Gooding is saying things like oh Boudreaux's a really good coach so maybe that means Thomas Vanek someone who's been slumping and is on the downside of his career maybe he'll get a few more points now maybe Zach Parise will be able to get a few more points like what is it about a new coach like Bruce Boudreaux like he's so great I guess like Anaheim's had a really good record for a long time, but do we think that this coach can bring more fantasy value out of his players? And I guess same with the Sens. Like, do now we think Mike Hoffman is going to get more points than before because he has Guy Boucher as coach instead of Cameron?
1: Well, it's interesting you bring up Mike Hoffman because Mike Hoffman had his most successful and prolific year of his career, arguably, in junior hockey while he was being coached by Guy Boucher. Hey, So perhaps this is a good sign on the Hoffman front that maybe the Sens feel like, with Boucher behind the bench, Hoffman is worth keeping around and that they will get more out of him than they have so far. But obviously, a new coach is going to have an effect on a team. What it will be, we don't know. I mean, Boudreaux is interesting because he really changed how he coached with Anaheim midway through this past season. He changed from what was supposed to be an offense-first team to a defense-first team. So now that he's in Minnesota with different personnel in a different situation, I imagine he's going to come up with his coaching strategy that's unique to the Wilds' needs and we'll see what he decides is best for the wild to go defense heavy or offense heavy or somewhere in between.
0: Yeah, I guess I could see the effect of the coach in terms of giving a player more of an opportunity. If a guy hasn't been on the top power play, now he's on the top power play. That's what we talk about all the time on this podcast. That's going to make a big difference. I wonder if a guy like Thomas Vanek, who has been given a lot of opportunities in Minnesota, maybe then he was taken down to the third line, but I would probably guess that Mike Yeo would say that was deserved. I wonder really how much of an effect Boudreaux is going to be able to have on a guy like Thomas who's just been slumping and you know not playing well apparently I guess it'll be interesting to see I'd be curious to know if there's going to be any significant differences in players without like a change in their deployment
1: yeah so we'll have to see how that all goes down I'd say for Vonick it's maybe a new lease on life except that he did have two different coaches this past season and he did not succeed with either one of them in fact he was scratched healthy by each of them So I'm not sure what Vanek has left in the tank. Hopefully, Bruce Boudreaux can activate it. If anybody can, I believe that Boudreaux would be one of those guys.
0: All right. So it'll be cool to see. I mean, obviously, the Pittsburgh Penguins, their fantasy fortunes and obviously the real team, but their fantasy fortunes really turned around when they fired their coach and hired Sullivan. I don't know if he should get the credit, like Sidney Crosby all of a sudden went on fire like Hornquist, though I guess there was that was an example of a coaching change really making a difference because Patrick Hornquist was like off the top power play and on the third line for a while. Then when the new coach came in, he went back where he belonged playing with Crosby for most of the season and we all know how it's gone for Patrick Hornquist.
1: Yes, that was a coaching change effect, I think, on all the players. It wasn't just that they turned their games around at the right time, although that might have been a small part of it. They did change the way they broke out of their own zone and advanced into the offensive zone. Mike Sullivan seems to have found a way to work with what the... Penguins had back on defense which Mike Johnson hadn't quite figured out an effective way to do
0: Yeah, and okay, I guess this isn't a typical episode of Keeping Carlson. Obviously, we don't have a lot of fantasy news to share, so we're just kind of rambling. Let us know on Twitter what you think of a a more free-range episode like this. But Brian, you're talking about the Pittsburgh Penguins, or I guess I brought up the Pittsburgh Penguins. Let's shift over to talking about what's been going on in the NHL playoffs. Specifically, I want to know, have you changed your mind about the whole Matt Murray versus Marc-Andre Fleury debate for next year? You said on a recent podcast, you know, you still would draft Fleury high. You think that he's going to be fine, even though Murray's been playing so well, but now, you know, a couple more weeks have gone by. Fleury is healthy, but backing up Matt Murray in the playoffs and aside from Saturday's game against the Capitals where he didn't do so well he let in three goals had only an 842 save percentage but the three games before that he was unstoppable like Matt Murray a lot of people have been giving him the credit for the Penguins jumping ahead in this series let's say Washington I mean it's hard to say like let's say what happens for the rest of the series but as of now are you a bit more concerned about drafting Fleury as high as you would have going into next season with Matt Murray putting up such a strong performance maybe there'll be more of a 50-50 thing or is Fleury going to just take the reins as the number one goalie like he was this year?
1: Initially, I was being stubborn and I was not changing my mind. But now I am starting to change my mind. Mark andre Fleury does not appear to be a lock to play as many games as he historically has with the Pittsburgh Penguins. Now that Matt Murray has not only emerged, but right now of all goaltenders left playing in the playoffs right now, he is the highest adjusted save percentage at even strength. His high danger save percentage is second amongst remaining goalies as well. This is, of course, all the small sample size, but it is something. If the Penguins are seeing success with this guy named Matt Murray, then you'd want them to maybe try that out during the regular season too. Not like they need a lot of help in goal, because Marc-Andre Fleur has done his job very well as the Penguins starter, but if you're looking further into the future, I mean, there's no argument against giving Matt Murray more experience if he appears that he can handle an NHL workload.
0: Yeah, I think it's a very interesting situation. You know, this almost happened a few years ago. I recall there was a playoffs. Maybe, Brian, you could remind me of the year, but Fleury did badly as he tended to do in the playoffs almost every season. And then Thomas Vaucun came in for the Penguins and played pretty well. And I remember going into that next season, we were thinking, oh, maybe Vaucun is going to be able to steal some starts. He ended up having an injury before the season started, never played basically again, I think. I think he ended up retiring. So we didn't end up finding out what the Penguins would do with having an upstart goalie that did really well in the playoffs that could maybe take starts away from flurry now it's happening again though this time flurry hasn't even done badly he was just injured it's just matt murray is doing so well so yeah this is kind of a novel situation at least for me i can't think of another example that's exactly like this one a goalie who was fine got injured the other goalie comes in it's amazing then what happens the next season like i can think of last year scott darling played a bunch of games for chicago in the playoffs but then crawford took the job back And i remember over the summer i was one of the people saying oh maybe crawford isn't going to be such a great value pick because they might give darling more starts like they did in the playoffs crawford ended up being an amazing pick and if anything there was a great opportunity to get crawford later in the draft than maybe you should have and maybe that will happen again with flurry i imagine he will be falling later in the drafts so the question is just is that going to be a steal because he's going to be the starting goalie on this awesome team or is it for a good reason in that he's going to be splitting starts with matt murray
1: yeah, Vokun came in for the Penguins back in 2012-2013. He was 36 years old at the time, played 11 games in the postseason for them, won six, lost five, but had a 933 save percentage and a 2.01 goals against average in that time. And around that time, I was pretty low on Fleury as being an above-average NHL goaltender. I'm higher on him today than I was on him back then. So I was also really eager at the time too to see Vokun have another run because he had some great years in Florida and in Nashville and I wanted to see good things happen for him. But switching back to present day, I don't know if I can think of an example exactly like this one. Maybe the closest that comes to mind is Vasilevsky and Bishop last season when we saw Vasilevsky get a chance to push when Bishop was out with an injury, and he did well, and we thought that would translate into more playing time this year, and I feel like it might have been there for Vasilevsky to take, but he was not able to take advantage of it, and Bishop played so incredibly. So what Matt Murray is doing now essentially means nothing in terms of a slam dunk for next season. We don't know what share of games he's going to get next season. We don't know if he's still going to play up to this level next season, or if He's going to struggle and Flurry will up his game. But maybe it does give you a chance to get Flurry a little later in the draft. Like if you're picking between the Penguins tandem right now, Flurry over Murray, I'd still prefer the disparity there and having Flurry as your number one than I would in terms of like Elliot Allen over in St. Louis.
0: Right, yeah. So we'll get to Schmore later in the summer, as I feel like I say every summer series episode. And by then, we'll also know the full result of what happened in the playoffs. Who knows? Maybe Mark andy Fleury gets back in the net at some point. But it'll be fun ranking these guys. Like, just like I'm saying that maybe Fleury will be a nice steal later in the draft. Maybe Matt Murray will be a nice steal much later in the draft. Maybe you'll be able to get him as one of your final picks, and then he could end up doing the same thing. Who knows? You're saying probably Fleury, but it's possible.
1: Yeah, maybe Murray could be drafted around where a lot of people took, say, John Gibson this past year.
0: Right, before the news came out that he was going to be in the minors to start the season, I guess, if they had early drafts. Another goalie controversy that I wanted to quickly get your thoughts on. A similar situation, actually, on the New York Islanders. Thomas Grice has been playing this whole time because Halak's been injured. And we had a question from Corey over on our patron-only Facebook group asking, with Grice playing so well and making a third what Halak is, both are 30 years old too, by the way. You guys think there's any chance they buy out Halak and roll with Grice? So, obviously, if that were to happen, as Corey has laid out, then for fantasy, it becomes easy. You just draft the goalie that's still on the team, but assuming that both goalies go into the Islanders as possible starters, or possible goalies that will get playing time, you know, Grice had a really great series against Florida. 944 save percentage. Hasn't been so great against Tampa so far. Only an 899. We'll see if he can extend the series for the Islanders, or if Tampa's going to close it out today. But yeah, I guess, pretty much the same question to you. Going into next season, is Halak still the number one goalie on the Islanders that you would have drafted him as this year? Or do you have to be more careful because maybe Thomas Grice will get half the starts. Just like he actually ended up getting this season. Like Grice did play a lot.
1: Starting with Corey's point about them being the same age, that is unbelievable, considering that while they were one draft year apart, Halak was drafted a year before Grice was. But Halak has played triple the number of minutes in the NHL that Grice has. Grice has bounced around a whole lot more. The Islanders are his fourth NHL team in as many years. But I seem to recall, Elon, thinking back to the start of the season, that... Halak you know we thought the Islanders would be a really good team and he could reap the benefits of that but that grace was breathing down his neck the entire time while doing it I never thought the difference between them was terribly large and I still think Halak is somebody who can be an average to an above average goalie in the NHL so even though he's getting paid four or five million dollars When you're overpaying a goalie, that is something you try to avoid, and goaltending is a position where teams can save a lot of money. I don't know, though, that the Islanders are going to be able to get rid of Halak without eating a significant portion of his contract. And at that point, you wonder if it's still worth trading him. So going into next year, even with financials in or out of the picture, either way, I still see Halak as somebody who will be given the chance to take that number one job whether it's right at the start of the season or to challenge Grice over the course of the year. Because Grice hasn't exactly been Mr. Consistent himself, not this year, not in his career, and that's been the reason why he's bounced around as much as he has.
0: Yeah, though, I guess the argument for Grice would be he needs to actually get consistent starts to sort of build his way up into being a consistent goalie, which may be a fair argument. And he has been pretty good since Halak got injured, but definitely not as good as he was. I remember right when Halak got injured, we were really thinking, oh, you got to grab Grice because he was having such an amazing season with the games he was playing. He was one of the top backups in the league. Then he came in and actually faltered a little bit, then sort of got better just in time for the playoffs and had that great series against Florida, like I said. So yeah, just another interesting goalie storyline going into next year. And it's going to make drafting goalies so interesting. We actually had a really fun conversation on the Patreon cast last week about drafting goalies. And we were sort of saying after Holtby and Price and maybe Lundqvist, even though even he has a bit of a question mark in front of him, you know, it's hard to really decide if it's worth drafting the next goalie because there's so many guys that could end up being really good. Why waste a high pick? on maybe, uh, Ben Bishop, when you could go a little bit farther down and get a Devin Dubnik, and who knows who's gonna be better, really, so. Then you have the whole next tier of all of these guys in tandems. We've mentioned a couple already, potential tandems, and there's going to be more. Lots of intrigue. Moving on, one other piece of news before we get into the players we wanted to talk about today that we've actually prepared. The draft lottery happened since our last episode, and Toronto got the first pick. They had the highest chance of getting it, and they got it, so good for them. They did what Buffalo could not last year. They got Eichel, I guess, so that's not too bad, but no McDavid. This year, Toronto will get Austin Matthews, assuming they don't trade the pick. I've seen some interesting articles, or I don't even know if interesting, but Intriguing articles about, ooh, maybe Arizona's gonna be able to convince Toronto to trade them their pick. I don't think it's happening. So now we're gonna have another blue chip number one pick coming into the league next season. Last year, the projections were all over the board for Connor McDavid, if you recall. Some people were saying maybe 60 points, other people were saying 80. Obviously, he got injured, but basically, it was the 80 guys that won out. He was basically a point per game player, even a little bit more. Now we've got Austin Matthews. We already talked about this on the Patreon cast extensively. So, Brian, maybe you could just give a quick rundown of what you think we can expect for Austin Matthews next year on the Toronto Maple Leafs.
1: Yeah, so what we focused on on the patron cast was how hard is it to score 55 points, say, as a rookie. And if you look at who's done it since 2009-2010, which encompasses the last five full seasons in the NHL, because there was that lockout-shortened one in the middle of it, you'll see that nine players have managed that feat of scoring 55 or more in their rookie season. Two of them did it last year, Artemi Panarin and Jack Eichel. Aside from that, the list reads, as such, Mark Stone, Johnny Gaudreau, Jeff Skinner, Philip Forsberg, Nathan McKinnon, Andre Palat, Matt Duchesne.
0: And then, of course, Connor McDavid didn't, but he basically did. He just got injured. So you maybe you could add him to the list. So it seems like, obviously, it's not an easy achievement, but, you know, nine players, 10 players that have done this in the past five years, you'd have to think with the pedigree that Austin Matthews seems to have, I'd imagine he should be able to join this list. Like he definitely has a higher pedigree than some of these other guys did coming into the league. So what I'm getting from you is maybe a 55 point floor for him. Is that kind of what you're saying or am I totally misreading? No, you're
1: misreading. I would not think 55 points is the floor. I would think that's a hopeful ceiling because the difference with... Austin Matthews, from a lot of guys on that list, like Palat, like Panarin, like Stone, he will have just turned 19 years old when this next regular season begins. If he does make the team... He would be an elite company if he was to score 55 or more in his rookie season as a player aged 19 or younger. If we look back in the last 10 years, since 2005-2006, only 7 players aged 18 and 19 years old have managed to score 55 or more in their rookie seasons. Again, you're going to hear some of these names twice. In order of the points they scored in their rookie season, they are Crosby, Patrick Kane, Jeff Skinner, Nathan McKinnon, Kopitar, Eichel, and Matt Duchesne. So big company there. And if Austin Matthews is supposed to be like any of those guys, then hopefully he can get 55. I think you're looking for Jack Eichel-like projection from Austin Matthews going into this season. The thing working against him is that Jack Eichel probably had a lot more to work with in Buffalo than what Austin Matthews will hypothetically have to work with in Toronto.
0: Yeah, well, we'll see. I mean, there is Nazem Khadri, James Van Riemsdyk, some of the young guys like Nylander, Sashnikov, Bozak is still hanging around. Like, there are some talented players. Like, I'd imagine if Austin Matthews played with Van Reemsdyke and Nylander for example that seems to be a pretty decent line so I think there's some upside. I think I would draft him anyways as like a 55 to 60 point guy for next year. Obviously we'll have to see as the preseason approaches and we'll see how he's being utilized. Is he getting like a top power play spot? Is he going to make the team? Obviously that's a big part of it. It'll be fun to dig into this in the preseason, but the way rookies have been going like I remember also being surprised when people were projecting Nathan McKinnon to get so many points going into his rookie season. He ended up getting like 70 points. And Connor McDavid, he blew him out of the water. So I don't know. I'm I'm actually pretty high on austin matthews but i'm just basically basing this on just the trend of other high profile rookies that have come into the league i don't actually know too much about the guy we'll learn that all next year but i think like 55 60 points for sure reasonable and maybe even a a bit more upside there
1: No, I think that's optimistic. And there are other Toronto Maple Leaf rookies to be keeping an eye on too, right? There's Mitch Marner, and then we're all interested to see what William Nylander is going to do if he gets his chance to play his first full season in the NHL. Lots going on in Toronto, a lot to be excited about. If you're a Leafs fan, which is something we've been saying for a couple years now... It's still like a shock to the system to hear, though, after so many years of the opposite.
0: Yeah, and I guess one thing that still needs to be figured out for the Leafs is the goaltending. And I'm really excited to find out what they're going to do. That'll be an interesting storyline in the off season. But yeah, it is a great time to be a Leafs fan right now. And it's always really hard as a Leafs fan to actually get tickets to see a game. The Leafs are always selling out. Or if they're not, the tickets are so highly priced. And that's why you might want to check out our sponsor, SeatGeek, because they help you find value when searching for tickets. They rank their tickets by value. They look at where the seat is compared to how much it costs to help you determine if you want to buy that ticket. Also, the price you see is the price you're going to end up paying. No hidden charges at checkout. So SeatGeek is definitely a site I like to go to when I'm thinking of buying tickets to a game.
1: And SeatGeek is going to make it worth your while to check them out too. If what we haven't said has convinced you, and it should have, by the way, how about $20 off your first purchase with the promo code KEEPING? All you need to do is download the app or go to the website... Find the promo code, type it in, K-E-E-P-I-N-G, and you'll get a $20 rebate on your first ticket purchase made with SeatGeek.
0: Yeah, I've actually been living in Toronto for almost four years now, and I still haven't gone to see a Leafs game. I guess now's probably the time, and I said this on the Patreon cast or on the Facebook group or something, people are getting a bit mad at me as a guy who used to live in Ottawa for being excited about the Leafs. I'm kind of feeling like I'm a Leafs fan right now. Like, I'm excited. I hope they're going to do well. I know that Ottawa fans think you're supposed to hate the Leafs. How can I hate anyone, especially a team that's doing all these smart things like the Leafs and has all of these young, exciting prospects.
1: I'm going to draw a really weird line here. I'm not a Leafs fan, but I'm a fan of what the Leafs have been doing.
0: (laughs) What if they re-sign James Reimer in the offseason? Will that make you more or less of a Leafs fan?
1: More of a Leafs fan. Yeah, me too. All right. Wait, no, more of a fan of what the Leafs are doing. (laughs) Okay. You almost got me there.
0: What if Carlson got traded to the Leafs?
1: that's ridiculous
0: <laughs> what if uh, the leafs offered the first pick in this draft for eric carlson you don't think the sense would consider it
1: what if the leafs changed the logo on their jersey to be that of the ottawa senators
0: okay it's not the same carlson might not all you know daniel alfredson played in detroit for a season so anything could happen and dion Feneuf is an ottawa senator there so you you're go.
1: absolutely right
0: <laughs> okay brian the stuff we actually decided we were going to talk about this week. Let's get into it. We wanted to talk about some players who had great seasons, maybe surprisingly great seasons, and we want to talk about whether we think they'll be able to do it again, the surprising players, as opposed to some guys who maybe had bad seasons, and we want to know if they're gonna be able to bounce back. We might get into that next week. I've got a list of guys with the criteria that I just specified, and I want to start with some older players. There's some old players that maybe we would have thought going into the year, there's no way this guy still has the juice to put up really significant numbers, and these guys all really surprised this was kind of the year of the old player and no i'm not only talking about Yarmir Yager. we we'll get to him but how about we start with joe thornton we spent a lot of time last week talking about brent burns and his amazing year but i feel like we haven't given enough credit yet to jumbo joe he had 81 points in 82 games this year he was a point per game player he hasn't done that for a long time like this is one of his best seasons of his career or at least for a really long time What happened this year with Joe Thornton? And plus, I remember he was slumping at some point early in the year. A lot of people were talking about whether we should be dropping him or trading him. So, like, if you even take out that part of the season when he had his short, bad stretch, he was over a point-per-game player. Like, for the fantasy hockey playoffs and all the time near there, he was, like, one of your most valuable players. On the other hand, he's 36 years old. That's pretty old for an elite player in the NHL. Do we think he has it in him again next year to be a point-per-game player, or do we have to assume this was an anomaly and this awesome production is not sustainable?
1: So I'm going to take you to task, Elon, for calling this production an anomaly. Yes, it was a little higher than it has been over recent years, but the stress is on a little, and I'm going to tell you more about exactly how his production from this past year stacks up to production from the previous years. Joe Thornton this year, we all know, He managed a point-per-game pace for the first time since back in the 2009-2010 season. That's six years ago. Not to say he's been very far from it in the meantime, though. He's finished above 75 points twice since then, and he's been a reliable 70-plus-point guy save for last season where he was on pace for just a point or two less than that. So how did he break through this year, so to speak, from being a 70-75-point guy to an 82-point guy? The key way is he scored more goals. His 19 goals were the most he scored in the last five years, and they were essentially the difference between another 75-point season and the campaign that he ended up with. Eight of those goals came on the power play, which equals the amount of total power play goals that he scored in the last three seasons combined. And sure enough, if you look at his power play shooting percentage to figure out how did he manage to do that, well, his shooting percentage on the power play was noticeably higher than usual, But the question here is, was that really luck that he had more shooting success on the power play? How much of it was just random variance? And how much of it was because the Sharks have figured out something great to do when they have the extra man? Because Sorton was not alone in seeing a friendly shooting percentage on the power play in San Jose. The Sharks as a whole were definitely above league average there. They'd been a bottom third team in terms of power play success for the last couple years. This year they jumped from being like 19th or 21st in the league in power play percentage all the way up to third in the league, scoring on 22.5% of their man advantage opportunities. So we're going to have to wait to see next year if the Sharks' lethal power play is based in some kind of tactical brilliance or is really more subject to the wants of the hockey gods than Sharks fans would care to admit. Either way, I still think Joe Thornton is going to be good for his 60 assists. That's an average year for him. And when you think of valuing him, I like to think of, say, Henrik Sedin maybe as an age comparable, but also a guy like Nicholas Backstrom, who is just so assist heavy, such a good setup man. And that's the sort of value you can get from Joe Thornton. Thornton's going to be 37 when the next season begins, so it's fair to expect some kind of decline. His own even-strength and shot attempt totals did, in fact, take a dip this year, and maybe that age-related decline would be enough to offset whatever extra bonus points he managed to accrue by scoring goals on the power play this year. But when push comes to shove, I don't think there's any reason to value Joe Thornton any differently than you have for the last several seasons. In fact, the ones who really need to change his place in their draft rankings the most are the ones who found themselves surprised by his production this season. 37 years old is definitely going to scare some people away, but he's a player type whose age doesn't really scare me. You know, fast skaters or big-time snipers, those guys tend to fall off a cliff a lot more dramatically than a guy with a game like Joe Thornton, who's great at setting up goals, has great vision, and has adapted so well to make the most of every pass he makes and every stride he takes. He's also got plenty of finishers around him to help cash in as long as he can keep setting them up. So you asked me if Joe Thornton can do what he did last season again. And my answer is even if he doesn't, his place in your draft rankings should not change dramatically from where it was last year, unless, again, you were one of those that underestimated him on the whole.
0: Okay, so if I could unpack that, it sounds like you're saying don't expect another 80 points, but 70 points should be kind of a lock. You should expect him to get close to those 60 assists again, and then it just depends how many goals he could put in. It might be 10, it might be 15, it might be 20. That's going to make the difference, but he's just... Solid and reliable for those assists and the power play points. Those are the big two things that he provides you in fantasy. It really depends on your league for how valuable he is. Like, he's obviously very valuable, but like, what tier of player should you take him? Like, the downsides of Thornton A, he's a center, pure center. So, he doesn't give you any position flexibility, and centers are usually the easier guys to find. Also, he doesn't really help you in goals. He doesn't really help you in shots, but. Assists and power play points, there's few that will give you more than Joe Thornton. In fact, this season, Joe Thornton was second in the league in assists. You know who was first?
1: Well, Henrik Sedin and Nicholas Backstrom both spent time injured this year. Where did Artemi Panarin or
0: Patrick Kane end up? <laughs> okay, I, I like where you're going. Patrick Kane was third with 60 assists. Artemi Panarin had a great year, but he was down at 47. Not even close. The number one in assists, Brian, was Eric Carlson. Of course. Oh, of course. <laughs> 66 assists. What a year for Eric Crossman. We're talking about Joe Thornton. I don't disagree with you at all. I think that he's the kind of guy that you can get as a steal in your drafts just because people don't want to bank on an older player, especially in a keeper league. Sometimes you're in a keeper league and people think, oh, I have to draft young guys because it's a keeper league. But you know what? For at least next year, probably even the year after... Joe Thornton is going to be an elite guy to have on your team. So you don't want to undervalue him just because you're in a keeper league, especially if you're not even keeping that many players. Maybe if you have him right now, I don't know. You have to consider keeping him. It sounds crazy. Why would I keep someone who's 36 years old? I need to think to the future. But hey, the future is now. Next season, you got to win that championship and Joe Thornton's going to be able to help you. So it's something interesting. A lot of times we get questions about keepers and that's the big thing. And that'll actually be the theme with a lot of the players we're going to talk about now. So Brian, why don't we move on to the next guy we have on our list here. I want to go to Anaheim And I feel like we spent a lot of time talking about the Ducks this season on the podcast. We talked about all the goalie shenanigans and who was going to be the number one there. We talked about what was going on on defense and there was the intrigue of Shea Theodore and like who was getting the power play time. We always would talk about who's going to be playing with Getzlaff and Perry. But one guy we didn't really talk about but had kind of a breakout year, depending what you were expecting out of him, was Ryan Kessler. I feel like he really surprised me. He's 31 years old. He's not Joe Thornton age, but he is, I guess, over that hump of being a player who's still nearing his prime. He's definitely on the other side of that. And he put up a great season, 53 points in 79 games. He hasn't had a higher point total than that in the last five years. Like last year he had 47 points, 43 the year before. And you know, Ryan Kessler's a guy, if your league counts, like face-offs. He's one of the top guys in the league. He had 980 face-off wins this year. He was already considered a viable face-off guy. And this was one of his highest productions ever in that stat. And also, especially like at the end of the year, Ryan Kessler really heated up. He had seven goals and 10 assists to end the season in his last 13 games, which is phenomenal, over a point per game. So Brian, like, I know he's not a guy we generally talk about in fantasy because he's sort of one of those edge periphery guys in terms of points, but do you think that we can rely on him to once again be a 55-point player next year? Maybe even higher considering how many points he got nearing the end of the year, you know, obviously alongside Jacob Silverberg, who was finally starting to break out. Seems like things are looking up for Ryan Kessler at this point, or was this also... Just like I asked about Thornton, was this kind of a mirage and we can't expect it to continue?
1: I'm going to come down on you hard, Elon, for asking if he can have another 55-point season when he has not done that since 2010-2011, where he had 73 points, still as a member of the Vancouver Canucks. That was the second of back-to-back seasons in which he cracked the 70-point barrier. Elon, he had just 53 points last year, not 55, and I know that sounds like nitpicking, But it's also an indication of where I'm going with my answer. Well,
0: you know, that was 53 points in 79 games. Maybe in three more games, he would have gotten two more points. That's basically what his pace was, 0.67 points per game.
1: Yes, if he kept up that exact pace in those extra three games, he would have finished the season with 55 and 100th (laughs) of a point. I'm not exactly sure how to say that as a full sentence, but in any case, he didn't play 82 games, Elon. I don't know what he would have done if he played 82 games, but first, you touched on this already. His face-off value is ridiculous. He takes a lot of them, and if you're in a league that counts face-offs and you're asking us a question about how you should value Ryan Kessler, please mention that in your question because it definitely ups his worth in those sorts of fantasy formats. He's ranked sixth in faceoff wins in each of the last two seasons, and if you combine both those years, I'm pretty sure he'd crack the top five. He took his fair share of faceoffs in Vancouver, but those numbers really jumped when he moved to Anaheim over the last couple years. One thing to keep in mind if you are in a league that counts faceoff wins, I'm curious to see if his share of faceoffs changes with a new head coach in Anaheim. Just because he was Bruce Boudreaux's guy does not mean he's going to be the next guy's guy.
0: Okay, well, also, aside from face-offs, we should also mention that he's a big hits producer. I know a lot of people mention Ryan Kessler as someone you could rely on for points and also a decent number of hits taking a quick look now he was about 35th amongst forwards and hits in the league last year but you know that's including a lot of players that you just don't want to have on your team because that's all they'll give you is hits you know the matt martins and the cody mcclouds i'm sure if we filter out players who only had let's say 40 points or more he must have been in the top 10
1: yeah just a quick look it looks like if you rank the top 35 guys in hits by points he would end up around fourth or fifth on the list so he gives you a much better balance of hits and points than a dedicated hits guy like Matt Martin or Cal Clutterbuck would give you.
0: Of course, Alex Ovechkin is in a league of his own when he gives you 50 goals and 225 hits.
1: Okay, but let's actually pivot away from hits and face-off wins because there's a lot of leagues, including the Cupful, where face-offs aren't even a thing. So you're looking at how he surpassed the 50-point mark last year. That's something he hasn't done since the 2010-2011 season. And do you want to know, is he going to do it again in the 2016-2017 season?
0: Yeah, that's basically the line. Is he fantasy-relevant or not? In a league that doesn't count hits or face-offs, if he can't get above 50 points, I don't want to draft him. Should I draft him? (laughs)
1: So I think my answer is going to be yes, you should draft him as a player who has the potential to touch 50 points. But I also feel like around the time you're drafting Ryan Kessler in a league that doesn't have faceoff wins or hits, there are probably some more interesting options available to you with higher upside at that same moment in your draft. Now, I understand, like, where this question comes from. You know, 53 points, we're not talking about a lot of players who had 53 points and saying, oh my goodness, can they do it again? It's because of the way that Kessler ended his season. He had 17 goals and 24 assists for 41 points in his final 43 games of this past season, which is really just incredible. That's like an 80-point pace, 75-point pace. I mean, look at it this way. Those 41 points in his last 43 games are essentially within a stone's throw of his full season point totals from the past several seasons before this past one. So we want to know, you know, can he keep producing at that clip? And you know the answer is, of course not. His shooting percentage was off the charts during that time, near 20%, pretty much doubling what his career mark was, which sits between about 11 and 12%. Interestingly enough, though, some people might not catch on to this because his year-end shooting percentage was pretty close to his career mark at being just between 12 and 13 percent. And that essentially illustrates how miserable Kessler's first half of the year was, where he shot so far below his career average mark that it negated the incredible aberration that was his second-half shooting percentage. So if you're asking me whether we can expect second-half Kessler to keep rolling, my answer is essentially, did you expect first-half Kessler, he of 8 points in 36 games played, to keep rolling the way that he was, or not rolling, I suppose would be the better way to describe it. And my answer is neither first-half or second-half Kessler from last season is the real Kessler. I think the real Kessler is probably a 45-point guy to be safe. 50-point upside would be fantastic. One thing that helped Kessler a lot towards the end of the season not only was he clicking with his own shooting but his line mates were too we know Jacob Sulferberg really turned it on towards the end of the season even Andrew Cogliano was able to get in on that too I imagine he's going to stick around in the top six on the Ducks depth chart with whoever the new head coach is but I just don't see the same 55 point upside that a lot of people might after that huge run that he had pretty much over four months from January all the way through to April
0: Yeah, I guess the one thing I would say, Brian, is if you're saying that you're looking at him as a 50 point guy, how many 50 point guys are there out there that are capable of putting up almost a point per game pace for a few months at a time? Like, at least with Ryan Kessler, you know, you're gonna get at least around 55, or sorry, 45 to 50 points, as you would say. But he does have the potential to turn it on and give a lot of points. He's shown that he can do it this past year. So I think that makes him a little more exciting to me. But I agree you. I'm not going to draft him as like a 60-point guy now. But I think that I would take him a little bit higher than the other 50 to 55-point guys just because in the right situation, he's the type of guy that can blow up. Or maybe I'm just being affected by this small sample size.
1: I think you are just being affected by what you saw most recently. If you look at the first half of the season, his first 36 games or whatever, he's also a guy that can go stone cold. Although we know all of the Ducks were struggling at the time... but it wasn't the first time that he's had such a poor run of
0: production in the last few years. Sure, and we'll see also what happens with the new coach. I think if Kessler could stay playing with Jacob Silverberg. I think we could agree that we think Silverberg has only up to go, and so he could probably bring Ryan Kessler with him. But, okay, I'm not going to spend too much time arguing the merits of drafting Ryan Kessler too high. Let's move on to the next guy we wanted to talk about. I guess I'm saying we're talking about older players, but I keep going younger, but still kind of old. Age 30, Patrice Bergeron. He's younger than me, but whatever. I'm going to call him old. (laughs) He had a career year this year, such an amazing season, 68 points in 80 games. That's his highest point total since way back in 06-07 when he had 70 points in 77 games. He had 73 points the year before that. So all the way, like 10 years later, Patrice Bergeron is having a career year, He had 32 goals, 36 assists. He was also like a point-per-game player for a lot of the year. I guess there was one cold stretch in there which brought him down to the more 70 points that he ended up getting. He was definitely a steal for anyone who drafted him because I'm sure you got him in more like the 6th, 7th round, like unless you were drafting for other stats as well. Or actually, I guess the main stat that he's known for is more like puck possession, which isn't a fantasy hockey stat. But, you know, this year you also got a bunch of shots from Patrice Bergeron, 282 shots. That's like a career high unless you go back to 05, 06. Just an amazing year. Overall, I'm rambling. So Brian, you prepared something about him to say. Why don't you tell us what you think about Patrice Bergeron? Can he do this again? Is he a 70-point guy now?
1: You can't say it's a career high unless you look back to a certain year (laughs) in which he surpassed that number.
0: Fine. It was his second career high. And if you take away the first couple years of his career, it was a career high. It's just surprising for someone to outpace themselves at this point in their career. That's what I'm saying. You know what I'm saying, Brian. Come on. It's the summer series. Maybe I'm a bit rusty.
1: Well, I'm going to say it properly, Elon. Bergeron had the third highest point total of his career. He did have those two seasons above 70 points. If you go back to the early part of his career as a sophomore and a third year NHLer, in those years, he did that with huge power play production. And sure enough, he found that huge power play production again this year. If you look at recent seasons, these are his power play point totals, 14 11, a prorated 8 in the lockout shortened year. 14, 11, 8. You get the idea. This year, 25 points with the man advantage for Patrice Bergeron, essentially doubling or coming close to doubling all of his recent full season power play point totals. So there are two places to go from here to figure out well, why was he so successful on the power play this year? What was different? Well, first, we can plainly see that he played more minutes with the men advantage this season than he had since those big seasons where he scored more than 70 points in his second and third year in the NHL. He had 45 extra minutes compared to just last year, and again, his highest total for sure since at least 2007-2008. His shooting rates did change up a little bit, but they weren't especially different. They seemed to move around a little bit from year to year. His numbers have oscillated back and forth, but They weren't outside the realm of what could be expected from him. And, of course, I'm talking about his shooting rates with the man advantage because we're trying to figure out why he got all those extra power play points. So more minutes is one thing. Shooting rates weren't another, but shooting success rate certainly was a big factor. His personal shooting percentage on the power play went up, and in turn so did his individual goals percentage, which Elon is like his IPP, his individual points percentage. He was just a bigger part of scoring goals for the Bruins when they had the man advantage. Of all the power play goals that the Bruins scored while Bergeron was on the ice, he grabbed a greater share of them. And that's more of a results-based stat. There's nothing to say, well, if he did that, there's not much predictive power in that. Just another way to describe how he really did up his goal-scoring game on the power play. So at the end of the day, I really actually feel like Bergeron is kind of in the same category as Thornton, who we just talked about earlier this episode. He's someone who's been doing his thing quietly for a while now, and these 10 or so bonus points with the main advantage that he picked up this year have woken up the rest of the hockey world to his offensive acumen. So my advice for Bergeron is about the same as it was for Thornton. You don't have to change your mind a whole lot about him based on the season he just had, unless you were already underestimating him to begin with.
0: Hmm, well, going into this season, he had 55 points last year. So that was a big difference from the 68 points he had this year. So, so I guess I'm just trying to figure out, like, where do you see him? Like, this year he was like a 70-point guy. Last year he was a 55-point guy. Are you kind of saying that you expect him to be somewhere in the middle? Like, one thing that I look at when I see his year broken into months he definitely started the year stronger than he finished it like pre all-star game he had 44 points in 49 games and then he ended the year with 24 points in 31 games which is a 63 point pace still really good but i guess not 70 point good like he was doing before like i said he was almost like a point per game before so when you say people were underestimating him going into this year like what do you think they were expecting another 55 point season
1: so Elon, i think a 55 point projection For this year, based on his season two years ago, would have been pessimistic because if you look at all the seasons before that he had 62 points. In the lockout shortened year, he was on pace for another 62 points. The year before that, he had 64 points. The year before that, he had 57 points in 80 games. So maybe he could have gotten one or two more like Ryan Kessler (laughs) could have this past year. Of course. So if you're considering Patrice Bergeron as a 55 point player, then you're not seeing the forest for the trees. You're not looking at his career sample size enough. You're just looking at one season in which, yeah, he didn't score as many points as he normally does.
0: Yeah. And since I'm actually saying that in his weaker second half of the year he still ended up with a 64 point pace that makes it pretty reliable I think to have that as his floor like 64 to 70 seems like a decent range for him and yeah I would draft him too next year like I'm very excited about him and I think he might still be a secret just because I don't know you don't hear people talking about Patrice Bergeron when we talk about elite players you know we have our Keeping Carlson patron rankings I think we mentioned this on the last episode or we definitely talked about it on the patron cast but every day we've been voting on another player to add to our rankings and Patrice Bergeron's name hasn't come up yet I don't think I'm curious to see where he'll end up currently we're up to number 26 and no sign of Patrice Bergeron though I guess the types of players we've been seeing for forwards have been Johnny Gaudreau and Blake Wheeler lately who had better years than Bergeron so I guess it makes sense
1: so Elon are you still thinking Patrice Bergeron is he 55 points or 70 point player or are you coming to sort of realizing that maybe he's just a 60 65 point guy
0: no yeah I'm with you I think he's probably a 60 to 65 point guy for sure that seems to be what he's been doing for the last few years. And you're right, a lot of people were just disappointed with one bad year and maybe didn't draft him as high. And the people who did draft him last year definitely benefited from that.
1: And there's no doubt that Patrice Bergeron is going to play a huge role on the Bruins for as long as he's there. One player we can't be so sure about that. Or can we? Well, this is why I'm asking you, Elon. Mark Giordano on the Calgary Flames has a lot of other players on his blue line that can do good things, namely TJ Brody, even more namely, potentially, Dougie Hamilton, he set a career high in points this past season, which is funny to say. He had 56 points in 82 games, and it's funny because we've seen him score at a pace greater than that for, like... The two years before this past season, but he wasn't able to play all 82 games as he did this past season where he did finish with 56 points, 9 power play goals, 10 power play assists, over 200 shots. That was a career high for him. I'm not actually sure whether I should be excited about that or a little disappointed by his season last year. Elon, what do you think we can look to get from Mark Giordano next year? Where does he rank amongst all those top elite fantasy demon that are
0: coming out of the woodwork? Yeah, good job, Brian. A little role reversal here. And yeah, Giordano is an interesting case. We have been talking about so many elite fantasy defensemen. I feel like he's maybe fallen out of the discussion, but I don't think he should have. And he's had a very strange career, Mark Giordano. Like, he wasn't a huge factor early on. Like, he was more of a 30 to 40 point defenseman for the first, say, six years of his career. But then he really broke out as an elite defenseman three seasons ago in his age 30 year. And I feel like this is an abnormal thing to see, Before that, his best season was in 2010-2011 when he had 43 points in 82 games, but then in 2013-14, he had 47 and 64, which is a 60-point pace. Then 2014-15, he had 48 points in 61, which is a 65-point pace. And then last season, like you said, he had a 56-point pace in 82 games. He actually had 56 points in 82 games, which, like you say, is below what he's done the previous two years where he was 60 and 65. So before we dig into the numbers, a couple obvious things about this season compared to the two before. One, his point pace is down, like we've said. But the other is that he played 82 games. And this is actually his first time playing more than 64 games since 2010-2011. He's had a lot of trouble staying healthy. So this was a very positive thing for Mark Giordano just to be able to play all of the games in the season. So maybe you would say perhaps his decrease from a 65-point pace to 56 was due to the slog of playing a whole season. It's harder to keep up such a high point pace for 82 games. But I don't think that's it. Basically, I think it's just something weird happened at the start of the year, and Mark Giordano was just, like, a different player. Like, he only had eight points... In 24 games to start the season, only one power play point in that span. And if you recall, a lot of people were worried about him because he wasn't even seeing 50% of the power play time. Things were getting shuffled around, his ice time was a bit down. I remember we had a lot of talks of maybe Mark Giordano isn't the guy that we expected him to be, but after that he righted the ship and he put up 48 points in his remaining 58 games. That's a 68-point pace. So if you take out the first two months of the season, Mark Giordano actually had his best point pace of his career and he stayed healthy. So the question now is, of course, whether we can expect another near 70-point pace Next season. Like, I don't think we are that surprised that he had 56 points this year. That's probably what I would have projected him at. It's the fact that he did so well near the end of the year. Like, how high should we rank this guy? And I know, like you always do, Brian, let's start by looking at the power play. He had nine power play goals and 10 power play assists on the year. And even though this was his first full healthy year since becoming an elite scoring defenseman, these aren't his best numbers. Like, last year he had 14 power play points in 61 games, which is a similar pace as this year. But the year before that, he had 20 power play points in only 64 games, compared to 19 this year, which was in a full season. And actually, back in 2010-2011, when he only had 43 points overall, 25 of those were on the power play. So all this to say, this wasn't like a Shattenkirk situation, where all of a sudden he just ballooned into getting 10, 20 more power play points than he's used to. Obviously, that's a bit of an exaggeration, and that's the reason for his success. Like, he did good on the power play, and as you'd expect, as like the top power play quarterback, but it's not not as if the power play was the reason for his success so then of course the other place we tend to look outside of power play is shooting percentage and giordano shot at a 9.9 shooting percentage this season while his previous few seasons have been more like 7 7.8 6.9 so a pretty big jump But keep in mind, he does take a lot of shots for a defenseman. He took 212 shots this year, and if his shooting percentage was 7.5, let's say, instead of 9.9, he would have had 16 goals instead of 21.
1: I'm going to step in there, Elon, for a second, though, because his even strength shooting percentage actually stayed pretty consistent with what it's been in previous years. But on the power play, it jumped huge, although it could jump huge because last season he shot just 2%. With the man advantage this year, he was back to a much more reasonable 16%, which sounds insane, especially for a defenseman. But on the power play, it's not... A terribly weird place for your shooting percentage to land.
0: Yeah, Brian, I have a theory here. Tell me if I'm completely out to lunch, but let's say if Giordano had an especially high power play shooting percentage this past season, so then let's say next year we expect not as many of those shots to go in. But since it's on the power play, I would imagine there's a decent chance that some of these shots that get saved, someone else will bury the rebound. So maybe even if his power play goals go down due to a lower shooting percentage, could that mean that maybe he'll get a few more assists to make up for it?
1: But it's a very interesting perspective to say, well, because I score fewer goals, because fewer of my shots are getting past the goalie, there's more rebounds coming off my shots, which offer more opportunities for my teammates to bury those shots. I mean, for that, you could look to on-ice shooting percentage, and you can see a slight improvement in that metric last year, too, over the year before. But again, the year before last was a really weird one for Giordano in terms of power play shooting percentage. So actually, this past season was pretty regular, as far as his career numbers look.
0: Yeah, and I'm obviously not saying that every single shot, if you decrease his shooting percentage back to regular, that every single of those shots is going to turn into an assist. But maybe a couple of them. So just to say, it's not like you could just say take away five goals and don't add anything. Maybe you could add a couple of assists there. But anyway, looking quickly at some advanced stats, Giordano has had a huge surge in IPP over his last three seasons. He was always around a 30 to 35 percent guy. Then these past three years, he's been 47, 52, and 45. Just to say, he's just become a bigger part of. Calgary's offense a lot of the goals are going through him now and you know Maybe after that first jump to 47 three years ago, we would have thought that was something to worry about and maybe it was a bit of an anomaly. But now that he's been doing it for three straight years, like he's a different player now. Like we've said, since three seasons ago, he's become an elite defenseman. And as we're sort of getting at with this segment, like I don't see anything crazy that happened this year. He's a great possession player. His course, has been over 50%, even though he's on a weak possession team. So there's no reason to expect Calgary's going to give him like less ice time or anything like that. Even with Dougie Hamilton, like you brought up, is like a good guy who might eventually take over Giordano's spot. Right now, they were playing together, at least on the power play, and that was going fine, you know, Giordano plays with Brody at even strength, I'm not afraid, at least in the short term, of Dougie Hamilton really hurting Mark Giordano's production, so I feel like at this point, maybe there's not much of a point in digging more, like, I'm just gonna say, I'm gonna bank on Giordano putting up at least a 60-point pace next season, and we've seen that he's capable of doing even better, since he was more of a 70-point pace after those first couple of months, the players around him, like Gojo, Monahan, Hamilton... Sam Bennett, they should all continue to improve. They're all still going into their primes. So I think I'd be very comfortable having Giordano as my top defenseman. If, like, Carlson and Burns and Letang and Suban are taken, there's a lot of great D options in that next tier, such as Oliver ekman Larson, Klingberg, John Carlson, Roman Yosi. Like, I'm sure... I- Someone will say I'm missing someone, and it'll probably be another tight race between all of them. But I consider Giordano to be a pretty solid bet to put up a 60-plus point pace with a strong potential to be closer to 70 for long stretches during the year. So if he falls because he only had 56 points this year, maybe let other people take some of those other defensemen. Then you take Giordano, you're probably in just as good shape.
1: Yeah, it's interesting, Elon, that you're saying after he had a 56-point season that you can pretty much guarantee 60, maybe 70?
0: Yeah, well, I'm just thinking those first two months, I want to take them away. Like, something weird happened. He wasn't playing on the power play. Like, after you take away those first two months, he was a 70-point player for the whole rest of the year. He was so reliable and such a big part of their offense.
1: Yeah, I think that's fair. And if you look under the hood, you know, his numbers last season didn't really change much from the two seasons before, which can either make the case that two seasons before, he got more than he deserved, or or that last season he got less than he deserved. I think you've made a compelling case for the latter that Mark Giordano saw some bounces go against him in the early part of this past season. And you know what? Calgary's another team looking for a coach. We'll see what that coach does with him and how that might affect his play. That's another angle to consider in this whole thing.
0: Yeah, it's true. If he's taken off the top power play, All bets are off, and I guess that's not a complete impossibility. So maybe for that, you might want to go with a Klingberg who's almost guaranteed to be there. But I still like his chances. Like, he's done really well. Like, why wouldn't he play on the top power play? Dougie Hamilton? They could both play. They both played on the top power play for much of this season. Unless they completely change their system, which is possible with a new coach, I guess. They could go four forwards, but why not just have two defensemen?
1: You're right in a sense, but I've seen a few good articles over the last couple of years and how four forward power plays are really the better way to go. So if the new coach comes in and implements that system, then there is the concern over which of Giordano or Hamilton would be the better guy to QB that first unit, although... A lot of teams don't have two guys like Giordano and Hamilton on their point on the power play, and maybe that's why four forwards works better for them. Maybe it doesn't apply to Calgary with two defensemen who are so capable of putting points on the board in their lineup on a nightly basis.
0: Yeah, well, now you're scaring me, Brian. Now I don't know if I want to be so sure that he's 60 points at least. I guess there are a few things that we can speculate about that might take him down a notch, but he's just been so great. For three straight seasons now, I'm not ready to expect less. Maybe I'll get burned, but when I'm drafting next year, I'm definitely going for Giordano if I could get him at like a 60-point place, i.e. like when other 60-point defensemen are getting drafted. Because I think he's like at least 60 points and probably upside for more. But okay, let's move on. I promised old, so let's go to where everyone's thinking. The guy who just signed another one-year contract extension, Yarmir Yager, is going to be back playing for the Florida Panthers next year. And what a year he had, 66 points in 79 games, just unbelievable. And I asked on the Facebook group, are you guys going to be drafting him as a 60-point guy going into next year? And I don't think anyone said yes. We're all expecting he has to go down at some point, maybe 55, I don't know, maybe 60. At the same time, he's Yarmir Yager, like, he did well right up till the end of the year. He had one slow time around the All-Star break, and I was actually a little worried. I ended up trading him in the cupful for Rasmus Ristolainen, which I'm not exactly sure if that ended up working out for me. I needed a defense. Anyways... Forget about that rabbit hole. Yarmir Yager ended the year strong. Goes into next year, I'm assuming, to play still on the top line with Barkov and Huberdo. Like, he could potentially have a great opportunity. Lots of great young players for Yager to play with, even if he falls to the second line. Maybe he could play with fellow older player U C Jokinen. maybe I should say veteran and not older player maybe that's a nicer way to say it but obviously these are very talented guys who are putting up great seasons so there's nothing for them to be ashamed of like they're amazing but Yarmir Yager Brian like what do you think like how do you project like where do you draft Yarmir Yager at this point I think he's one of the hardest guys to project
1: well first off you can't call anybody else a veteran if you're using them in the same sentence as Yarmir Yager
0: okay fair enough how old is U C Jokinen?
1: Yussi Okunin is 33 years old, which is 11 years (laughs) younger than Yarmir Yager.
0: He's a baby!
1: So yeah, where do you put Yarmir Yager for next year? I mean, he scored 67 with New Jersey, and then the year after his first year with the Panthers, he scored 47, and then this past year he rebounded again to score 66 points.
0: Plus, keep in mind, that previous season... He was on New Jersey at the start of the year and didn't do that great. But when he came to Florida, he had 18 points in 20 games. Even better than this pace.
1: Yeah, so Florida seems like a really good fit for him. I think Barkov and Huberdeau are a really big part of that. I think if it's perfectly on that line. And if he can stay there, then that's going to work out well for him. I don't see any reason at this point why not. Although we should expect some offseason tweaks from a Panthers team that was disappointed by being bounced in the first round of the playoffs when a lot of us had them going to at least the conference finals and maybe even the Stanley Cup finals. The thing with Yager that concerns me a lot is that his points per 60 went up last season at even strength, but that's essentially the only thing that went up at even strength. Everything else didn't even stay steady. It dropped. His shots on goal per 60 went down. His shot attempts per 60 went down. And not even on a per 60 basis like his totals went down he had 181 shot attempts last season and in exactly the same amount of time played in the year before that he had 230 another 50 shot attempts so I'm seeing a guy who's slowing down but is being helped out by people he's playing with and I don't want to do any disservice to Yager what he's doing right now is incredible I just don't know that 66 points is a reasonable expectation based on all the other indications of his offensive output. I'd be comfortable picking him around like the 55 point mark and then knowing that maybe he can explode for more, but he is somebody that definitely comes with a little bit of risk if you are going to add him to your fantasy team.
0: Yeah, I'm actually surprised also that you didn't mention he had a really high shooting percentage, 18.9% as opposed to numbers more like 10, 12, 9 for the last few seasons. And he scored 27 goals this year on only 143 shots. Compare that to 24 goals two seasons ago with New Jersey on 231 shots. So he definitely got a bit lucky with shots. But like you say, maybe he was just playing with better players. Maybe he was getting awesome passes from Varkov and Huberto that he was able to translate into goals.
1: Yeah, the shooting percentage was definitely high, and I didn't mention it because I didn't want to discount. It seems like the easy play. I often go to shooting percentage, but there are some other real red flags in Jager's numbers from last year. Although if you watch him, he does play a different game as a 44, soon-to-be 45-year-old player. He's got to adjust. He's not going to be somebody who's just throwing pucks on net, skating up and down the ice. He's got to conserve his energy, conserve those strides, and do the best he can with... The physical condition he's in as a 44-year-old.
0: Okay, so if you're saying that you want to bump Yager down to maybe more like a 55-point player next year, then what do you do with U.C. Jokinen, who we just mentioned? He had 60 points last year, not 66, but still a very good year. 60 points in 81 games. I guess at this point we could use Yager as the metric. Do you think Jokinen is going to be higher or lower than Yager next season?
1: So playing time is going to factor into it, although Jokinen played about 90 fewer even strength minutes this past season than Yager, though was close to Yager in terms of power play time, so of course that could be a slight advantage for Yager if that stays the same, but I'm still going to go with Jokinen because while Jokinen's the same as Yager in that its points per 60 went up to a level where it hasn't been for some time, all his other Offensive indicators rose along with it, and his shooting percentage did not rise to such an incredible amount at the same time. Dating back to 2007, Yusi Okunin put more shot attempts towards the opposition's goalie than he has in most of those seasons, his third highest total in terms of Corsi in that span. And of course, that leads to more shots on net. He had his third highest total of shots on net since 2007-2008. So whereas there are places in Yager's numbers where you think, ah, that's a little weird, that doesn't quite add up, Jokinen's numbers do, in fact, add up. And it'll be interesting to see who his centerman is next year, because he was getting second-line minutes with who I assumed was going to be the team's third-line center, Vincent Trocek, now, the Panthers essentially, I think, have two second-line centermen. We'll see how they roll those second and third lines through the year. I feel like Jokinen, Smith, and Chochek are too good a thing to break up going into next season. And obviously, the chemistry is there if they do happen to stick together.
0: Yeah, so poor Nick Bjogstad then, down to the third line, at least maybe at the start of next season. But yeah, I think it's a bit of a hot take you've given us, Brian. You see Jokunen projected to be higher than Yarmir Jager, according to you. I have a feeling in drafts, Yager's going to be going first. And to be fair, even if they have similar numbers of points, Jager tends to get more goals. So I guess it depends what you're looking for when you're getting to that place in your draft. And I guess we can't really end on a higher note than Yarmir Jager, so let's end the show here, Brian. We still had a few players we wanted to talk about. We'll get to them in our next episode of the summer series one interesting thing i want to discuss we talked on the Patreon cast about the 2014 draft class and how they bounced around a lot all throughout the season in terms of our rankings like reinhardt drysaitl ehlers fabry larkin i'll be interested maybe in the next episode to rank those guys i'd be interested to know on twitter what you guys think we had a fun discussion about it on the Patreon cast but okay hope you guys like this episode we'd love to get your feedback on twitter at keeping carlson we'd love to hear from you let us know also if you have any players you want to hear us discussing in the next coming episodes of the summer series also if you could be so kind as to give us a five star review on itunes that's something we always appreciate if you're interested in becoming a patron of keeping carlson you could check out keepingcarlsoncom slash patron some fun perks there like joining the facebook group coming to the patron casts and you could become a patron right now get all those perks for any donation amount so why not give it a try and like we said before maybe check out seat geek 20 off your first purchase with offer code keeping but okay with that let's cue the outro music and brian read us the credits this episode of the Keeping Carlson podcast was presented by Dauber
1: Hockey and supported by our patrons. It was researched with help from Dauber Hockey's Frozen Pool, War on Ice, Corsica Hockey, Hockey Reference, Hockey Database, Roto World, Yahoo Sports, and ESPN Fantasy Hockey. Owen Hockey Analysis.
0: <laughs> Great job as always, Brian. Looking forward to doing this all again in a couple of weeks.
1: Until then, keep on keeping Carlson.